everyone. Hello, everyone. It is episode three of our Speak Ola podcast, and normally I record these welcomes in a cupboard in my bedroom with acoustically suitable doonas draped over the doors of the cupboard, and I try to ward off the children that patrol my house. But today I've invited them in. Uh, who are you? Jack Wilson. And who are you? Polly Wilson. And this week we were sent... 18 avocados by our show sponsor, Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados. And of those 18 avocados, how many did I get to eat, Jack? Uh, 12. 12? No. How, how many did you eat, Polly? 12. She ate 12. I got to eat six. I didn't see a blemish on my six, Jack. What about yours, Polly? Not a single blemish. They've been pulled into the sponsorship campaign. Green skin and purple skin avocados. You can find out more at lovemyavocados.com.au as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Anything to add, Jack? Uh, the avocados were really good. The avocados were really good. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Welcome to episode three of the Speakola podcast. I am Tony Wilson, and this episode is dedicated to teachers. Yes, the glory of the teacher-student relationship, the wonder of the classroom. In particular, I'm going to be focusing on one commencement speech delivered by classroom teacher Margaret Edson in 2008 at Smith College. What's remarkable about Margaret Edson's speech is that of all the hundreds of commencement speeches I've watched and listened to in building the Speakola website, I've seen speakers focus on themselves and their life story. I've seen speakers focus on the students and the trajectory they're on. I've seen speakers focus on outside events and public figures. But until this speech, I'd never seen anyone focus on the people behind them the people in the robes, the professors and the lecturers and the teachers on stage. And Margaret Edson herself, as you're about to find out, is amazing. If just for this fact, she is an elementary school teacher, taught kindergarten for several decades and now grade six or sixth grade as she calls it. But when she was 30, she wrote a play called Wit, which won the 1999 Pulitzer Prize. It was also the winner of the 1999 New York Drama Critics Circle Prize. It was made into an HBO TV adaptation in 2001 that was directed by Mike Nichols and starred Emma Thompson. And then when it was re-released on Broadway in 2012, it won two Tonys. So this is the very definition of a smash hit play. And yet throughout it all, she taught elementary school and she still teaches elementary school. It's a remarkable and beautiful story. And so let's hear from her. Margaret Edson, the playwright, Maggie Edson, the elementary school teacher, resident of Atlanta, and our Speakola interviewee of the week. Hello, 
special day on the Speakola podcast. We have our first international guest. Margaret, thank you for joining us. Can I call you Maggie? Please do, Tony. Thank you. So tell us a bit about teaching. What's your teaching role at the moment? Uh, Now I'm teaching sixth grade social studies. So my students are 12 years old. And we are studying history, geography, government, and economics. And uh, they are ready to take on the world. This is their first year of middle school. So they were in primary school through grade five. And now they are running with the big dogs. And they are ready for action. It's a very exciting time in their lives. And it's very fun for me to be part of it. You had a lovely little detail about a, a pizza being shared in your commencement speech in 2008. Is there a moment over this uh, teaching period that sticks with you, a, a little story of teaching this year? Well, we um, study World War One, and we read a historical novel that takes place in World War One. It's a series of letters that a soldier writes home to his son. And then there's a minor character, and what the students have to do is then, for their project, they have to rewrite the book from the point of view of the minor character. And the this minor character anticipates a world that has no forgiveness in it, and he finds out he was wrong and comes to realize that there is forgiveness in the world. And it's very interesting to see students this age really come into that understanding through fiction. For a lot of them, it's the first time they've read a historical novel. And and it's very exciting for me to be around while that's happening. You convey how much you love being a teacher in 2008. Has, has any of that love diminished over, over the 12 years that have followed? No, it's increased, Tony. Um, I taught kindergarten for a long time, for 12 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've been teaching sixth grade. Um, I came for my interview and I said to the principal, um, you know, I've been teaching kindergarten all this time. And she said, sixth grade is exactly the same. And that (laughs) is true. So, so the, the human mind is very alive at age five and it is very alive at 11 and 12. So it's, it's just always, always interesting to me. The Smith commencement really is one of my favourite speeches and, and one of the popular ones on Speakola. Can you tell us how it happened? How did it come to be? It came out of the blue. They wrote me a letter and asked if I would do it. And it was just a gigantic, colossal honour. Smith College is a small college, but it is, I have to say, very prestigious. And, um, you know, senators, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, was their speaker this year. So it's a very high-end list of people giving the commencement address, and it was very surprising to me. But they were very interested in my work as a teacher, and that was very moving to me. So what I really had to do when I got up there was show them that I was ready for this. Everybody needed to be put at ease. Everybody in the audience and all the faculty and everybody, they all needed to know that I could do this because they all knew that this is not the kind of thing I do. So my chief assignment, as I understood it, was to make it completely clear from the beginning that I was ready for this. And you may notice in watching the speech that I don't use a written text. And uh, so that was just working without a net. That was terrifying and thrilling, very exciting. That is very noticeable. And I was going to ask you if the speech was completely memorized and if you were working off a script in your head or or whether you had any notes at all. Um, What was the process there? 
uh, no, no notes at all. And I was, as part of this project, which is to establish myself as a person ready for this challenge of 5,000 people there, I memorized the, the introductions. And, and then I listed a few women who I had known who had died. I wanted to stop and take time for that. And so I thought it would help me take command of the moment if I had that very first part memorized. So that part was absolutely set down. In terms of the subject matter, you focused exclusively almost on teaching and that classroom experience. One of the reasons the speech stands out to me is that most commencement speeches are about the person and about it's a bit of a personal pronoun journey through a life. And you have quite a remarkable life story to tell. You've won a, a Pulitzer Prize for writing a play and that must be an incredible experience. And and yet you steered almost... Well, you steered absolutely away from that topic. Yeah, I, I thought this is my moment. This is my chance to to really think through these ideas about teaching. And and my sense from the college is that, that they were honoring me as much for staying in the classroom as for whatever success the play had. Tell us about wit, sometimes spelt with a semicolon in the middle. What sort of a play is it and how did it happen? I wrote Wit in 1991, when I was 30, and it is a play about a professor of 17th century poetry who is diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer. And what she finds is that the tools that led her on an upward path of success upon success are now not useful to her. In, in the hospital. She's going through a very aggressive treatment. She's part of a research protocol. And everything that made her outstanding in her professional life is really of no use. So she's, she's at sea. She's lost. And she doesn't realize it. And she's fighting against it. And she is speaking to the audience during the play. And she is very frustrated by the play. She thinks I'm a terrible writer and she's irritated by the turn of events in the play. Um, She speaks to the audience and parts of it are very funny and that upsets her, which is funny in itself. To be a character in a play and not liking the play is very funny for the audience. (laughs) And by the end, she's so broken down by this illness and this treatment that she realizes she has nothing left except her own truth as a person, her own true self, and that that's enough. That's plenty. So it ends up, it's, it's, she dies, and she says so in the beginning, um, but it ends up not being depressing or down. It ends up being open and out. Maggie, how long did the play take to write? I, th- I thought about it for a couple of years before I started writing. So the whole process was very long. And then I sent it out to theaters all over the U.S. and it was rejected by every theater. And then it was picked up by one theater and they did a reading and decided to do a full production. And then, Tony, the work began because then it was – I had to cut it by a third. And that was just agony. Putting stuff in was nothing compared to cutting stuff out. Um, in writing, as I'm sure you know, yeah. and so then the play when I the play I wrote was two and a half hours long, and the play that ended up is 90 minutes long, so it's performed without intermission, 
And so that that took place over a while, and then it was rejected some more, and then it was produced and then won the Pulitzer Prize in 1999, and then it was made into a film with Emma Thompson, and that was made by HBO, and that's on YouTube. You can see it for free. It's an incredible story, and it is actually the stuff of commencement speeches, you know, that, that <laughs> you know, the perseverance and the sticking at the task of getting it produced and then having to rewrite and then not having immediate success and then I think you got an excerpt published in the New York Times and suddenly it's um, off Broadway and in New York and um, you know it's an incredible story of perseverance and achievement and success Um, and yet (laughs) the brilliance of your commencement speech is that you do not mention it this is a pure love letter to teaching. Well commencement I mean what a day you know what what a moment in the lives of these young women and in their families and then all the teachers are there and it is it's just a beautiful moment and to stop and really think about it as as itself uh, was a, a great gift to me a great opportunity and a and a great um, chance for me to to come into my own thoughts about it you mentioned that you memorized the opening and it's a it's a stellar opening. You really get quite a few laughs. Um, and that icebreaker, welcomey part of a speech is, I think, one of the most difficult. A lot of people do that part of a speech very badly. And yet, you had just a little joke to attach to every person that you had to thank. Well, they they had to know that, that I was up to this task. But then it also had to be me. It had to be me. <laughs> and it, so it had to be funny. It just did. But the seriousness of my delivery and then the goofiness of what I was saying, especially in that opening part, um, set the tone in, in the way that I wanted it to be. I wanted, I wanted everyone to be relaxed knowing that I could handle this. But then I also wanted to laugh about it at the same time. I mean, they, they invited me and that includes being funny. So for me to just get up and be pompous and serious, that that wouldn't have been sincere. So I had to I had to be august and make fun of myself for being august at the same time. It, it's it, it's interesting to watch. Um, I actually wondered whether I wondered whether you were trained as an actor, whether the your time writing plays was uh, related to any sort of theatrical background. Um, in high school more um, than in college, um, but then. As a teacher, I'm performing. I do. I'm performing all day long, and and I'm and I'm creating a relationship with an audience all day long. So I have plenty of practice in that. And then you acknowledged some people who had died. Who were those people? Um, who were the ones that you were referring to there? That that was risky, also, because I I was honoring the tradition and subverting it at the same time. So in you know I named each entity that had to be welcomed or had to be acknowledged in order, right, in order of precedence. And so I took that part very seriously, but then I made some little jabbing, winking comment about each one. And then and then to really turn the tone of it to a very serious and very heartfelt listing of people that I knew associated with the college who had died, that, that was very risky. That was, I wasn't sure how that was going to go over. But I, it was something I really wanted to do, and so to build up the the tone of of um, irreverence, sort of, and then become very reverent, very serious, 
um, and then open it up again and, and to just move the audience through these different tones, these different structures of speech, of, of really of rhetoric. I was sort of steering a bus or a ship. Um, and, and you took us back towards uh, an ability to laugh, actually, with the, the last um, mm-hmm. uh, person that you acknowledged, with Louise Zayna, who was class of 78, and you said, whom I did not know personally, but who could play the harmonica with her nose. And, and that line takes people out of the seriousness and the, the depth of feeling um, into a section that is going to be funny again. Yes, Yes, very good, Tony. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to wanted to really establish to them that I was one of them, right? That that I went to this college, that I sat in that place, that that I was part of this community, and and so the memorials really established that, really helped build that connection. And what about your college days? What did you major in, and and were they happy days? Yeah, yeah, I loved college. Um, I was a history major, and I studied literature also, and I just loved college, yeah. And I assumed I would become an academic, um, but then I never got around to it. And I then I finally, when I was 30, went to grad school, and at the same time, I was a volunteer tutor. And every week, I liked my tutoring more and more in an elementary school, and my graduate work less and less. So I finished a master's and then I became a public school teacher, a a government school teacher. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Which brings us to the heart of the speech, which is about the classroom experience and the act of love. Uh, And love becomes, I guess, the the skeleton of the speech, doesn't it, Maggie? Yes. And the heart. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it is about love. That's what it's about. So tell us how you how you wanted to bring that across. So tell us what what the job was now as a speechwriter who's going to have this theme and topic. Well, I I knew that it was not a typical topic, and yet what else is there to talk about? <laughs> Why would we not talk about that? And and especially on a day that is a celebration of learning. Why would we not speak of that? It's very hard to to talk about love in a way that's not romantic or that's not corny, that's not sappy and, and saccharine and, and wishy-washy. So I had to kind of walk around the topic and then drive into it. I had to introduce it more theoretically with what it, you know, it, producing nothing, expecting nothing, that whole passage. That passage is is beautiful. Um, you mentioned rhetoric before and the rhetorical devices. I don't know the extent to which you studied rhetoric in your English lit degree or in, in at college, but that's anaphora. Is that what it's called? Is, do, do, were you conscious of that sort of uh, rhetorical device while you were doing it? Um, classroom teaching produces nothing. Classroom teaching expects nothing. Classroom teaching withholds nothing. Uh, Tony, that's an example of anaphora. Which is a rhetorical <laughs> device? <laughs> no, I had no idea. <laughs> I'm sure well, your listeners I'm... are well aware of this rhetorical device of an opera. Yes. So um, for you, it's just something that sounds nice, right? You, it sounds you, nice. You were writing yeah. it, and it was sounds it was nice. And I needed the, beautifully. I I still needed the structure. That's still early in the speech, and I needed it to be very organized in that way. And before I could open up more on the subject of love. 
and you say that classroom teaching is based not on gain and fame but on love and and it was actually at that moment that I thought you know you really had an, an entry point to gain and fame I think most people who win a Pulitzer Prize or have their play you know lauded far and wide would be tempted by the riches or at least the glory that might be on offer with the decision was it was it an easy decision for you to sort of say I did that once I don't need to do it again I'm going to go back to what I always intended to do or was there a feeling was were you tugged in the other direction well I never stopped teaching I was teaching the whole time the play was on in New York and everything and I had plenty of gain and fame, <laughs> but I didn't want to stop teaching. So the attractions of gain and fame were not sufficient to derail me, I'm happy to say. After the love part of the speech comes the the political heart of it, which is the, the, the stuff relating to standardized testing and data. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, there, there are two things that I'm really talking about. And, and one is sort of puzzling over why we still get together in the classroom when technology from the clay tablets to printing with movable metal type to the microchip makes it so that we don't need to. Why are we still doing that? And, and that's something I'm very interested in. And then the rush to, to data, to quantifying education. So it's really those two ideas and the the technology that could easily replace the classroom. I, I just wanted to point out that we could be reading books alone instead, and yet we still come together. Why is that? And then talking about this emphasis on measurable outcomes for well, teaching. And what that does, I'm sure you noticed, is set up the ending when I talk about the clay tablets and the bar graphs in that very last moment. So so those are the two ideas that I'm putting forward um, some thoughts about, the, the continuing wish for us to be together in the classroom and the, my sort of dismay about the emphasis on measurable results. Well, take us back to the technology bit. Has there been anything over the last 12 years that has shifted your view on the future of teaching? In particular, I guess, these last months, I presume you've been attempting to run a classroom from a Zoom screen. (laughs) Um, What are your thoughts at the moment? Yes, it's completely different now, isn't it? I was able to teach. I taught live and you know sitting alone staring into a screen and my students were staring into their screens and to the extent that it worked it worked because we had already had three-fourths of the year right so the the school shut down just for the last quarter of the year but we already had us we already had our relationship we already had our connections they knew that if they tuned in i was going to give them a good show And we were able to succeed to the extent that we were um, because of the relationship we already had. And the thought of starting with a new group of students in a virtual teaching structure is very painful to me. I don't know what's going to happen. We start again in August. We're on break now. And we were able to do it 
and I was really, I felt I was able to teach and they were able to learn because of this relationship that we had built up. And, and so I'm very dissatisfied, of course, with being alone in a room and having them be alone in a room. I hate teaching virtually, but, but I did my best and, and I felt very strongly that I was drawing on the connection that we already had. And so I'm very worried about starting with new students virtually, if that's what is going to happen. Do you have a, an opening shtick with new students? Um, is there? You talked about the performance and the act, and, and the speech actually shows what a great performer you are. But is there a, a certain a routine you give a new class that um, that you'd look forward, or you certainly miss doing if it was remote? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they they need to to think. Okay, this is a person who has something to offer me, <laughs> right? They're, they're nervous on the first day and, and the, the performance of the first day is essential. Yeah, it's, it's a big, big day. I'm exhausted at the end of the first day. And, and I will be distraught if, if that has to be virtual. That, that will be very sad for me. On the rush to data and pie graphs part of the speech um 2008 again is when the, the speech was delivered um what have been your reactions to the last 12 years has it got worse um, are you more disturbed by this side of things or do you think that things have improved no it's gotten worse in the states anyway yes yeah and and i do understand it you need to be able to measure if what you're doing is effective um but in social studies especially we won't know for 30 years if, if what we teach is effective. We're teaching people how to be citizens, how to participate in the life of the community. And, and there's nothing that's going to measure that. The, the thoughtfulness of their response to other people and, and to local and national issues, that's going to tell our success and, and we won't have any idea. So I'm sure a literature teacher or a math teacher would say the same thing, that, that their subject is uniquely unsuited to this kind of measurement. But anything you do with your, with your heart, anything you do with your whole self, is, is going to be inadequately captured in data, trust me. You give the example of the pizza. This was kindergarten kids. And you explained the beauty of watching that get worked out um, and, and the collaboration between the kids is there an example you'd use now in in grade six where you are in awe of the process yeah what, what i really emphasize in my classroom practice is is empathy is this this human tool that we have to notice and care about and do something about the feelings of other people so when my students write in my class they're always writing in the first person they're always writing as somebody who is having this experience of history himself or herself and then I play these different characters in my teaching and and I absolutely embody one side of the issue and then completely have empathy for the other side of the issue and then I'll say remember last year in your schooling when everything was clear and simple and they'll say yeah we remember that <laughs> that's that's this is the adult world there's there's no clarity there's no simplicity nothing is 
easily resolved. That's that's life in the group, in the socius that we study in social studies. And bringing that complexity forward instead of trying to untangle it is is a skill that they develop over the course of the year. And what makes it possible is their increasing capacity for empathy. Towards the end of the speech, you bring it back in the direction of love, the 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 love in the transaction, and you mention your love of being in the classroom, and and you name check all of your elementary school teachers. Can you still do that? I can sure. probably do it if you like. I'll do it in 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 tandem with you because I I, f- I feel very similarly. Okay, so we'll start with uh, what we call prep. Yep, kindergarten. I, I, all right, that was yeah. Ms. Moshanik. I had Miss Wolf. All right, first grade was Ms. Williams. Ms. O'Neill. Second grade was Mrs. Clark. Miss Mullane. Third grade was Miss Bogan. Mr. McAuliffe. Fourth grade, I had three different teachers um, in kind of rotation Mrs. Mize, Miss Johnson, and Miss Parker. Mrs. Hope. And fifth grade was Mr. Eldridge. Mr. Bailey. And sixth grade was Ms. O'Neill. Mr. Davies. Yes. So we both had a Miss O'Neill. Is is there a moment in your elementary schooling which which lives with you as a, as a story and a, a memory? In my own education? Yeah. Low these many years ago. I just remember loving my teachers and loving being in the classroom and, and their, their care for us and their regard for us, taking us very seriously. I, I remember um, just feeling, I would not have called it love at the time, but now it's just soaked through with love in in all of my relationships with my teachers i remember the originality and the effort and the care i remember mr mcauliffe on april fool's day of my grade three years that's probably 1985 he told us that time had gone decimal (laughs) and so and so that there was 10 hours in the am and 10 hours in the pm (laughs) and that there were 100 minutes in each hour and he gave us these worksheets, the old purple sheets that smelt mm-hmm. fantastic, sure. yeah. that we could chrome on, and we had to try to we had to try to translate <laughs> the times that he'd put on the sheet into decimal times. And obviously, that's this incredibly difficult for a grade three um, conversion math. Sure, oh my <laughs> we were gosh. all just in tears. We'd all just got digital watches, and he said, "Oh, you can throw <laughs> them out." Yeah. You can throw them out. But it was just such a great effort and so much effort went into it and I've never forgotten it. It was great. Then imagine your dismay the next day to find out that the system that seemed to make so much more sense than the system we use was in <laughs> fact an April Fool's prank. <laughs> so how did you bring the speech home? What was the what was this conclusion you were aiming for? Well, I I knew what I was going to say at the very end, but I did not No, what ends up happening is I I say it's about your love for each other and your parents' love for you and your teachers, your teachers' love for you. And and that moment just got ahead of me. And they all stood up and started cheering. And and that was not planned at all. That was very beautiful, very exciting. But I I didn't choreograph it. I didn't have it in my mind that that was going to happen. And it was just this whoosh from the graduates. It was a very exciting moment. And then 
there was something else I was probably going to say, but I didn't say it. And so then I went right to my ending. Uh, even that morning, I, I was between two endings. I hadn't decided which yet. Um, but then the, these are the, this is a song by George Gershwin. I don't know if it's well known in Australia from the 1930s. Um, it's called Our Love is Here to Stay. And the actual lyrics of it, the lyrics are by Ira Gershwin, go, um, in time, the Rockies may crumble, Gibraltar may tumble. They're only made of clay, but our love is here to stay. And the song is, is quite well known. And, and, and yet, if you had never heard it, it still is all right. But what's, what makes it funny is to have the bar graphs in time, the bar graphs may crumble, the clay tablets may crumble, and then to be able to say they're only made of clay. And by then, everyone would have known the song. So to end this very august and serious moment of great import with the lyrics of a jazz standard from the 1930s um, was a bit of a stunt also. Oh, it was beautiful. And um, I didn't know the song, but um, just the, the shape of the words and the poetic meter to the lines you know really rang with me so uh, it worked on every level really good and, and so then you bathe in the applause of having done it were you were you wrapped as you sat down did you feel like i've nailed that uh i i had a great feeling when i was up there i i i could just feel everyone with me and for me and the the setting was beautiful. It's a beautiful spring day, and and the place where the commencement is is sort of surrounded by these very by a quadrangle of very college-looking buildings. And the dinner before, some of my former professors were there after twenty-five years, and and I was just full of memories, and 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 I felt the the energy of the the moment. Um, not having a written text is what makes that possible. And so to your loyal listeners, I have to say, put down that written text, leave it at home, get out there and just give it your heart and take that chance. I found the speech on a list. I think it was called The Eloquent Woman was the name of the website and the curator of that site sadly i think has passed away but she used to put up fantastic speeches every week on famous speech friday and yours was one of the speeches there did it have any lasting has anyone asked you about it in the years that followed has it had a, has it had a bit of a life not that i'm aware of um it's it's been online but you're the first person to want to talk to me about it which is a great pleasure for me well, that's very nice. And and the towards the end of the speech, you mentioned that you'd been teaching for as long as the graduates had been at school, which I think was 14 years, and that you had 16 years in front of you. How accurate is that? Is that still the plan to, to retire in 2022? Yes, I will be 60 and I'll have 30 years in the classroom and I will do something else. So that's a really clear life plan at a at a young age. Can you tell me the thinking behind that? Is, is that the sort of way you roll, Maggie? Like, is it just that you you kind of know what you want to do, and and it was very clear to you, and is very clear to you? Well, I I knew I didn't want to teach only for a brief time. I wanted this to be my life's work. But 
it will be good for me to do something else. <laughs> there, there are um, just great, great challenges and joys in the classroom, and it's it's a it's a young person's job. <laughs> How about that? Are you going to write another play? Is that is that part of the future? I don't think so, Tony. Um, the thing that gave wit its meaning for me was that it, it was this one thing that I wanted to say. I never intended to have a career as a writer. And then what I wanted to say, I wanted to say in my classroom. That, that was how I wanted to participate in the community. And I don't think writing will be the next thing for me. Have you got a sense of what, what it will be? No, I don't know. Well, it, it's fascinating to talk to you. You've got you have such a command of of thoughts and language and the speech. We're going to play pretty shortly so that people can hear it in its entirety. But it is a it's a masterpiece of structure and love and passion and delivery. Um, you know, it's just a a real gem. And so, thank you so much for being our first international guest, Maggie. Well, it's a great honor for me, and I love the idea of this podcast. And it used to be that the mark of an educated person was her or his ability to stand up and speak persuasively in public. And we have lost that as our goal. And that's regrettable to me. So I'm delighted to participate in this endeavor that celebrates speaking. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, best of luck over there in the United States in turbulent times and in, in lockdown. Um, and I really hope you're in the classroom for day one of first semester. Thank you very much, Tony. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. I've made a new friend today. Thank you. Speakola. The last part of the podcast is the speech of the week, where we play a speech in whole or in part, usually related to the feature interviewee. As I said in the interview, I've listened to hundreds of commencement speeches down the years, but few rival this one for freshness of content, beauty of language, construction, delivery. It's pretty much perfect. So here it is, the greatest tribute to the classroom teacher ever delivered, Margaret Edson's commencement speech at Smith College. May 17, 2008. President Christ, my new friend. <laughs> chair McPherson, taller far than a common board chair. <laughs> Trustees, you who care so much about this college and know how to party. Faculty and staff, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the messengers. Class of 1983, my sisters. When the history of the college is written, time will tell that this was the best looking class in the history. Allison and Desiree, I met you in the processional and I just wanted to say hi. 
parents, mom, dad, and graduates, the pride and joy. I remember on this day, Smith women who have died and who continue to be part of my life. Ruth Mortimer, class of 1953, curator of rare books, my teacher and my generous friend. United States Army Captain Roselle Hoffmaster, her death diminishes me and I pray that her life will expand me. Nancy Gardner, class of 1984, had the color of red hair that looks so good with dark green. Beth Macbeth, class of 1982, who I knew in the Glee Club, and at whose memorial her senior year, we sang the old revival hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Louise Zayner, class of 1978, who I did not know personally, but who could play the harmonica with her nose. <laughs> Filled to the brim, drunk to the dregs. Unscrew the locks from the doors, unscrew the doors themselves from their hinges. My task is to burden you with platitudes, and I accept with relish. Only connect. Think of things in themselves. Stop, drop, and roll. Do not walk on the grass if you are going anywhere. Salutations, memorials, bromides. Let us commence. I want to talk about love, not romance, not love, L-U-V. I want to talk about a particular kind of love, this love, classroom teaching. Yeah. I have my posse of gaily clad classroom teachers behind me. They like to be called college professors. <laughs> but we can't all work for the government. We gather together because of classroom teaching. We have shown you our love in our work in the classroom. Classroom teaching is a physical, breath-based event, eye to eye. It's not based on equipment or the past. It's not concerned about the future. It is in existence to go out of existence. It happens and then it vanishes. Classroom teaching is our gift. It's us. It's this. 
We bring nothing into the classroom, perhaps a text or a specimen. We carry ourselves, and whatever we have to offer you is stored within our bodies. You bring nothing to the classroom. Some gum. Maybe a piece of paper and a pencil, I don't know. And your gift to us is yourselves, your breath, your bodies. Classroom teaching produces nothing. At the end of a class, we all get up and walk out. It's as if we were never there. There's nothing to point to, no monument, no document of our existence together. Classroom teaching expects nothing. There is no pecuniary relationship between teachers and students. Money changes hands, and people work very hard to keep it in circulation. But we have all agreed that it should not happen in the classroom. There's no incentive structure built into classroom teaching because we get paid the same whether you learn anything or not. Classroom teaching withholds nothing. I say to my young students every year, I know how to add two numbers, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and they laugh and shout, that's so absurd, that's so unthinkable. What do I have that I would not give to you? Bringing nothing, producing nothing, expecting nothing, withholding nothing. What does that remind you of? Is this a bizarre occurrence that will go into the journal of irreproducible results? Or is it something that happens every day, all the time, all over the world, and is based not on gain and fame, but on love? There are those who say that classroom teaching is doomed, and that by the time one of you addresses the class of 2033, there will be a museum of classroom teaching. <laughs> Pretend I just said something fun. <laughs> Ever since the invention of wedge-shaped writing on a clay tablet, classroom teaching has been obsolete. It's been comical. Why don't we just write the assignments and the algorithms on the clay tablets, hang it up on the wall, and let the students come who will to teach themselves from our documents? Why, since the invention of writing with a pen on a piece of paper, do we still bother to come to class? Why, since the invention of movable metal type, don't we all just go to the library? Why do we have to have class? Why do we have to have teachers? Why, since the invention of the microchip, don't we all just stay home in our pajamas and hit send? <laughs> Technology is nipping at the heels of classroom teaching, but I perceive no threat. How could something false replace something true? How could a substitute, a proxy, step in 
for something real and alive? How could the virtual nudge out the actual? The other great threat to classroom teaching is the rush to data, data-driven education. I live by it. <laughs> we must measure everything, percentages, charts, tables. I'm not entirely opposed to this, and if data-driven education were a pie graph, I would have a piece. But I was not educated and did not become a teacher to produce a bar graph, a scantron. I love the classroom. I loved it as a student, and I love it as a teacher. I can name every teacher I ever had. Ms. Mulshanik, Ms. Williams, Ms. Clark, Ms. Pogan, Ms. Mize, Ms. Johnson, Ms. Parker, Mr. Eldridge, Ms. Bush, and that's just through sixth grade. I could go on, I promise. I loved coming to class, the chairs, the windows, unzipping my book bag. And I loved my teachers. There was content, I suppose. But that's not what I remember. I remember my teachers. I remember being in the room. And no data, no bar graph will be assembled to replace that, or even to capture it. This week, my students were working on dividing a pizza between two people. And they realized that if you make the line down the center of the pizza, the two sides will be equal. After much trial and error, they came to this conclusion on their own. And I welcome you to try it. I think it's going to really take off. And let this be where it begins. When they take a standardized test, they will know, they will be able to fill in the bubble next to the pizza that is cut exactly in half. So the question, do they know that, will be answered. Yeah, but I don't really care that much. What I care about is how they got there, how they figured it out for themselves. This skinny high school grad got herself into Smith College writing an essay about a theme by Anne Morrow Lindbergh, based on Montaigne, the journey, not the arrival, matters. It worked for me. <laughs> Standardized tests measure the arrival, but they have nothing to say about the having of wonderful ideas. Do you know it? Do you not know it? Is second. And how do you know it? And who are you? is first. The only way this knowledge grows inside the body of a student, you or my students, is with a teacher, with a classroom teacher. Of course, my students will insist they did it themselves, and I don't try to disabuse them of that. But the work that you have done was in the classroom with your teachers. That's the miracle of today. 
Why don't we talk about it? Because we can't point to it. It doesn't show up. There's not a bar graph for classroom teaching. There's not data for classroom teaching. And yet it persists this year and the next year. And ever since one biped showed another biped how to mash something with a rock and eat it. <laughs> Bipeds. <laughs> Telling tens of thousands of people what to do is not teaching, it's shouting. And we have a lot of that. Showing somebody how to do something the way that you do it is not teaching, it's training. And there's plenty of that. But the reality that is neither shouting or training is classroom teaching from our bodies to your bodies. Nobody can touch it because nobody can point to it. You have it forever. When it grows inside you, it's doing its work. We can disappear. We'll never see you again, probably. The chairs will be folded. It will be as if we were never here. There will be nothing we can count after today. But not everything that counts can be counted. Not everything that matters can be put into a pie chart. The Board of Trustees has set a very great challenge for itself to educate us all for lives of distinction. You are never going to be able to make a bar graph out of that. That is immeasurable. And that's what makes it so real. I admonish you, because that's my job, to think about the things that float away. Your love for your friends, the smell of the lilacs, the feeling your families have on this day. You will have nothing to take with you. The diploma you receive will be someone else's. That's good. Everything meaningful about this moment and these four years will be meaningful inside you, not outside you. I've been a classroom teacher as long as you have been in the classroom. We started the same year. And I hope to go on for 14 more years. That will make 30, and I'll be done. <laughs> At the end of that time, someone will bring me a box, and I'll put in it a ceramic apple that somebody gave me, thinking it would be meaningful or useful somehow. I will have nothing. I will have nothing. And that will be my proof of the meaning of my work. If you can point to something, you might lose it. Or it might break. Or somebody might take it from you. And as long as you store it inside yourself, it's not going anywhere. Or it's going everywhere with you. is a day of love. 
It's not a day of achievement, really. It's a day of your family's love for you, your love for each other, and your teachers. Your teachers' love for you. time, the bar graphs may crumble, the clay tablets may crumble, they're only made of clay, but our love is here to stay. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Speakola podcast. Visit the Speakola website at speakola.com. We're getting some amazing recommendations relating to the Black Lives Matter protests, including George Floyd's brother, Terence Floyd, Trevor Noah's monologue for The Daily Show, the rapper Killer Mike and his amazing press conference, Desiree Barnes, Kimberly Jones, and Maine Wyatt, who gave an amazing closing monologue here in Australia on Q&A about racism in this country. I want to say a big thank you to Margaret Edson. Maggie, thank you so much for your time. Check out WIT on YouTube. I want to also thank Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados for supporting and being friends of the show. Thank you, David Bridey, for the theme music. Thank you, Declan Fay of the Sweetest Plum podcast and also one of the creators of the Crossbred Christian Hip Hop podcast on ABC. Check that out. It is hilarious. Please subscribe and rate and review this show if you like it. It makes such a difference in the early weeks. And if you know a teacher who you love who changed your life, like Ian Mason did for me and John Allen, send them this episode and say that you couldn't express your gratitude as well as a Pulitzer Prize winner. Thank you for listening. Viva la teacher. Catch you next time.